Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Yes, indeed. Too much phlegm today, ladies and gentlemen. I got I, and you. If you need phlegm, I'm your man. So the um, midterm elections, mercifully, thankfully, are over for another cycle, which just means the presidential elections of 2016 are gearing up. And uh, so, of course, multiple competing analyses have uh, vied for our attention and credulity all this week. The president doesn't really feel it was on him, didn't, wouldn't even call it a shellacking, or as George W. Bush called his midterm defeats, a thumping. Uh, it was just a thing, you know, regrettable thing. Uh, the uh, That didn't stop the chief of staff, for uh, former Senate, well, still in the lean, lame duck session, the lean lame duck session, uh, Majority Leader's uh, Chief of Staff, Harry Reid's Chief of Staff, from uh, leaking to the Washington Post, I think it was, this week, on Tuesday, Election Day, uh, his complaints about the president's uh, inability to connect or unwillingness to uh, spend time connecting with members of Congress, most importantly, the leadership, most importantly, his boss, Senator Harry Reid. You had Republicans congratulating each other on basically keeping the really crazy Republicans from uh, the Tea Party guys and gals from participating and and being victorious in uh, the primaries this year. That's right. The Republicans who won were the less crazy Republicans. Just keep that in mind as we as we move along here. But it does beg the question, ladies and gentlemen, who really won? Who, who was the big? Let's put it this way. Who was the biggest victor uh, in this week's midterms? A case could be made that the biggest victor in the midterm elections this year was the private equity industry. Huh? Well, as you know, from having heard Eve Smith of NakedCapitalism.com fame on this program, public employee pension funds have been investing an increasing amount of their monies in private equity. Uh, for the same reason other people have, uh, in a time of virtually zero interest rates, uh, there is this so-called flight to yield. Uh, investors are trying to make some money somewhere. And private equity, which are these uh, private investment funds, hold out the promise of much higher returns than uh, the stock market or uh, even hedge funds. Eve Smith has pointed out that's a Kim era uh, their returns have not been that great in the last eight or nine years. Still, that's their calling card. And so state pension funds, state employee pension funds have been increasingly investing. Well, private equity firms don't like the fact that if your investors are public employee pension funds, that opens the door to Freedom of Information Act requests because it's public money being invested in you now, you see. So they've succeeded in getting some states to pass laws making the investment policies of private equity funds and the contracts they sign, the investment contracts they sign with public employee pension funds, secret, confidential, you know, none of your business. Back to the elections in at least half a dozen states. 
um, and including one Democrat, winners of gubernatorial office have been deeply involved prior to their entry into politics in the private equity industry. So while uh, nothing public may have won this week, private equity did big time. Hello, welcome to the show. From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're not number one. No, we are not. It, uh, it keeps on coming, evidence that we're not number one. This week, Gender Equity, the annual gender gap index by the Geneva-based World Economic Forum, Hey, aren't those the guys who will run Davos? 
every year? Yes. Yes, they are. So you, you take that into account. But uh, anyway, the World Economic Forum has this gender gap index. shows India falling to 114th place after being ranked 101st out of the 136 countries surveyed last year. Nordic nations, damn it, again, lead the world in promoting equality of the sexes, as they have for many years. Iceland, Finland, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark occupy the top five spots. What is with them? The United States climbed three places. We're number 20. Thanks to a narrowing wage gap and more women occupying political office. That's what it takes? Women in politics? All right, then. Yemen. 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 Pakistan. Our friend Pakistan and Chad remained at the bottom of the index. It ranks countries based on data reported by international organizations in categories of health, access to education, economic opportunity, and political participation. Women in politics. Overall, the report said gender equality is improving worldwide. But we're number 20. What is with the Nordic countries? And the, I guess it's the cold. Virtually every city in the home broadband speed leaders ranking, this is another ranking of nations, has seen an annual increase in its top broadband speed offering in the last two years. Those speed increases have not resulted in dramatic shifts in the ranking of the United States compared to those in other countries. Most Asian and European cities provide broadband service in uh, range 25 to 50 megabits at a better value than North American cities with a few key exceptions. When it comes to the estimated speeds a customer could expect to get for $50 in each of the cities surveyed, the U.S. is middling at best, many cities falling to the bottom of the pack. Analysis shows that in terms of speed and price, cities with municipal-owned networks in the United States, a bad old government, are on a par with Hong Kong, Seoul, Tokyo, and Zurich, and are ahead of the major uh, privately-owned broadband ISPs in the United States. In mobile and wireless hotspot device offerings continue to be expensive substitutes for home broadband connectivity. Customers in some other countries paying the same prices for mobile plans with data caps that are up to 40 times higher in speed than those offered by U.S. providers. We are not number one. And speaking of mobile telephony, thank you. Verizon and AT&T have been quietly, oh so quietly, tracking the Internet activity of more than 100 million cellular customers with what critics have dubbed super cookies. What could be wrong with those, huh? Laced with tracking devices. Mark is so powerful it's difficult for even savvy users to escape them, reports the Washington Post. The technology has allowed the companies to monitor which sites you and I visit, cataloging our tastes and interests. I taste a little um, bitter. Customers cannot erase these super cookies or evade them by using browser settings, such as private or incognito, things you could do on your computer. Verizon and AT&T say they have taken steps to alert their customers. You were alerted to this, right? You opted in, but you didn't have to. You would have had to opt out to avoid it. Privacy advocates have reacted with alarm as word spread in recent days about the super cookies. I'm seeing a Marvel movie. 
saying the tracking could expose user Internet behavior to a wide range of outsiders, including intelligence agencies, and may also violate federal telecommunications and wiretapping laws. Verizon's experiment with super cookies is almost certain to spur copycats eager to compete for a larger share of the online advertising profits. You're making it very difficult for people who want privacy to find it on the Internet, says a former FTC official who teaches at the University of Colorado Law School. And uh, by the way, I can provide you his home address if you'd like. Verizon began tracking its 106 million retail customers, non-government or business, a couple of years ago. Even those who did opt out of the program still have a unique identifying code attached to all of their web traffic. But that information is not used to build behavioral models. A company spokeswoman, Adria Tomaszewski, says the super cookie is changed regularly to prevent others from tracking Verizon customers. Yeah, we want to track you ourselves. Nobody else gets to track our customers. But she declined to say how often it's changed. Those who are not part of the Verizon advertising program called Precision Market Insights are not able to use the cookie to track Verizon customers. Independent researchers, however, dispute that claim. Unique codes get shared among websites, advertisers, and data brokers, nice people, allowing them all to gather so much information on individual users that it's easy to derive a name or other identifying data, experts, says. experts say. The process is called de-anonymizing a user. One security researcher from Stanford says, I don't know any computer scientist who takes that it's anonymous argument seriously. It's been so thoroughly debunked in so many ways. Critics also say the super cookies will be extremely valuable to intelligence agencies that monitor, monitor Internet behavior. This, again, is uh, on your mobile devices, your phones, your tablets. Mmm, tablets. Um, and you can check. I did uh, this morning, as a matter of fact, as I was reading this story. There was a website called amibeingblocked.com. And my phone is good. I'm not being tracked. I don't know if that's AT&T is just technologically behind the times. Imagine that. But at least I got no super cookies. I got super milk, but that's another story. And now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eversole, Jr. Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo, Hidalgo has asked French President Francois Hollande not to jump the gun as Paris considers whether to bid for the 2024 Summer Olympic Games. Nothing. Nobody will have me change the agenda or the method as far as a Paris bid is concerned, said Hidalgo. Hollande said a day earlier he was in favor of Paris presenting its candidacy, if it decides to do so. The mayor said she'd hurt Hollande's comments. The French National Olympic Committee president said there were strong possibilities that Paris may want to enter the race. It has lost previously three times. Paris. He voted against Paris. Meanwhile, in Rio, thousands of dead fish have begun mysteriously washing up in the polluted Rio Bay that will host sailing events at the 2016 Olympics. Experts are at a loss to explain why. 
Guanabara Bay has already been the subject of concern amongst sailors who are to compete in Rio because of the human sewage that gets pumped into his waters. Why would that affect the fish? The IOC has expressed confidence that Guanabara will be fit for sailing by the time of the game, but the recent appearance of thousands of dead fish and the foul stench of their rotting carcasses mm, has attracted further scrutiny with the Olympics less than two years away. Scientists are baffled by the phenomenon. Don't, don't you know that journalists love to write that sentence? Scientists are baffled by the phenomenon, but say there is no evidence so far to suggest pollution is the cause. It's just dead fish. as well as four dead sea turtles. Tests showed that this is not a matter of chemical or toxic water pollution, said an oceanographer in Rio de Janeiro. Water testing has not identified any toxic chemicals or any unusual change in the water's pH or oxygen. Not everyone is so sure, though. Worried fishermen and islanders are pointing the finger at the petrochemical activities of the state-owned oil giant Petrobra. That is right. That is an oil-fueled bra. And it was supposed to represent a dynamic future vision for Tokyo, flaring up and out of the city's Meiji Jingu Park in sinuous white arcs. Bazaha Hadid's design for the 2020 Olympic Stadium in Tokyo has been subjected to a two-year tirade of criticism, alterations, and budget cuts. And it's now facing its fiercest attack yet. After viewing the revised stadium designs, scaled down by a quarter in July following a 40% reduction in budget, one of the country's most eminent architects, 83-year-old Arata Isozaki, has launched a blistering assault against the project, declaring it to be a monumental mistake and warning it will be a disgrace to future generations. In a lengthy open letter, Isozaki rails against the distorted process that has led to a dull, slow form, like a turtle waiting for Japan to sink so it can swim away to Rio, where it can die. The site left me in despair. If the stadium gets built the way it is, Tokyo surely will be burdened with a gigantic white elephant. And we know Olympics don't like to end with those. Almost never do. This is the latest chapter in a saga that has seen the design subject to widespread opposition led by a number of Japan's leading architects. Shortly after the project was unveiled, 86-year-old Pritzker Prize winner Fumihiko Mahaki organized a protest against the scheme. Located in the historic outer gardens of the Meiji Shrine is all, on the site of the existing 50,000 capacity 1964 stadium for the Olympics, Hadid's 80,000 seat venue is planned to writhe across the park in her trademark style of intervening, intertwining white sinews. With broad arches rising up to 70 meters high, the London-based Iraqi-born architect says the scheme is a result of three decades of research into Japanese architecture and urbanism. I'm just saying it's ridiculous, says Maki, who designed the National Gymnasium in 1970, uh, sorry, 1990. Responding to outcries of profligate public spending, the Japan National Committee reduced the approved budget, but it remains more expensive than any other Olympic stadium in recent years, twice the size of the London Olympic Stadium, despite holding the same number of seats. Well, that's magic. That's Olympic magic. The downsize scheme, though, has done little to appease the project's critics. Still, a mammoth totally out of sync with its verdant surroundings, chairman of the custodians of the National Stadium Group, which is battling to save the existing venue, 
The historic area has been carefully conserved with strict building height limits for any construction in the area, he writes. The precious green space serves as an oasis for Tokyoites and visitors alike. The planned 70-meter-high new stadium with its affiliated facilities will inevitably decimate the landscaping and greenery in the area. But don't you understand? It's for the Olympics. The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our old friend from Aldehyde got used to it here in New Orleans when it was uh, emitted by all the FEMA trailers. Well, few studies have systematically examined the air quality inside gyms. For a new study, which will appear next month in the journal Building and Environment, researchers at the University of Lisbon in Portugal and the Technical University of Delft, who dealt that, in Holland, decided they would place air quality monitoring equipment in gyms throughout Lisbon. Uh, Carla Ramos, grad student at University of Lisbon, led the new study. She obtained permission from 11 Lisbon gyms to position air quality monitors, monitors in each site's weight room and, and several studios. The monitors measured the amounts of commonly found indoor pollutants. Levels were especially high during aerobics classes in the evening when many people were packed into small studios, stirring up dust and fumes and puffing heavily. What they found were concentrations of airborne dust, carbon dioxide, and formaldehyde that exceeded most accepted standards for indoor air quality. Of course... Insufficient concentrations, the dust and formaldehyde can contribute to asthma and other respiratory problems. Only almost all of the gyms in the study had levels of these substances that significantly exceed European standards for healthy indoor air. Elevated levels of carbon dioxide can indicate a poorly ventilated building, she said, especially if they remain inflated for hours, as they did in her study. We consider the gymnasiums meet the criteria for a poor indoor quality. So go try to be healthy and see what happens. You get bad air. You you know, you might start to uh, realize, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, you can't win. But yes, you can. Because there's news of Nice Corp. Yes, indeed. A former news editor at the News of the World, the tabloid newspaper formerly owned by Rupert Murdoch because he had to shut it down in the wake of the no, it's phone a- hacking controversy. That uh, former editor, Ian Edmondson, has uh, been sent to the Huskow. I don't think they call it that in Britain. He's been sentenced to eight months after he pleaded guilty to plotting to hack the phones of public figures, sports stars, and celebrities. He was told by the judge he had only himself to blame after he admitted conspiring to intercept voicemail messages over a six-year period. The judge said the list of victims of hacking with whom Edmondson was involved included celebrities, ow, politicians, and one person who was famous because of his links with the royal family. Or as they're called in England, a minor royal, perhaps. Taken together, they amount to a substantial invasion of privacy, which has caused distress to many people, the majority of whom cannot be accused of courting publicity. Edmondson, mouthed I love you to his wife in the gallery. I wonder what he meant by that. 
He was one of the original eight defendants, but for health reasons was deemed unfit to continue on the 29th day of the original proceedings. He's the fourth ex-News of the World employee to be imprisoned over phone hacking, the eighth to be convicted or plead guilty to the crime. In June, the former editor and a former press advisor to the the current prime minister was jailed for 18 months. News International's former chief executive, Rebecca Brooks, head of Nice Corp over there for a while, and Rupert Murdoch's prime priority when he came over to investigate the whole thing, as he said, they were cleared of, she was cleared of charges at the end of the trial. Edmondson was one of four news editors for whom a convicted hacker, private investigator, worked. Meanwhile, we've learned that virtually all of Rebecca Brooks she was cleared of all charges. Emails inside Nice Corp have uh, disappeared, not to be, not to be found or revived or resuscitated in any way, due to a new email maintenance policy initiated at Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Don't waste your time being angry when a moment's better with a smile. If you feel your time's been wasted, wasted here for a while. Standing at the bus stop, just across from crowds, waiting for that driver to take me to my heavenly house. I'll see you there What will they wear Will the band be playing What will the people be saying Does your father lie there Does your mother pray I'm gonna put on my golden crown At the foot of Canal Street Overflowing and the streetcar has seen its day. When all is gone, the plantations trim a I'll be swinging to that music on higher ground. Where pops is blowing, walk on. Upward Gable making sacred sounds. I'll see you there. the foot of Canal Street.
the street car has seen its day When all is gone, the plantations trim a the VUCA ray I'll be swinging to that music I'll see you there Apple, Florida, Street. Oh, what will you wear Apple, Florida, Will the band be playing Apple, Florida, What will the people be saying Apple, Florida, Does your father lie there Does your mother pray I'm gonna put on my golden crown At the foot of Canal Street From New Orleans, this is Le Show. I I did want to dedicate the uh, first song on the broadcast, I Knew the Bride, to yesterday's bride, who, uh, for whom I, I played my first, and I swear, my last wedding gig. Congratulations. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He's at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, things are going so well in Afghanistan. Now, the United Nations agency in charge of administering billions of dollars in aid to Afghan police has come under renewed fire for mismanagement, including a failure to account for $200 million in deductions from a fund set up to improve law and order. Well, how can you improve it when you don't? Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction John Sopko warns of growing concerns about fraud. No. And lack of oversight. No. In the Law and Order Trust Fund for Afghanistan, LOTFA. I'll have a couple of those with some cream cheese run by the United Nations Development Program to pay for Afghan police salaries and pensions. LATFA has paid out $1.62 billion in the last three years. International donors, despite their billions of dollars on reconstruction in Afghanistan, have left it still one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Major donors are concerned about its lack of progress in fighting graft. Maybe it's not fighting it. That would account for the lack of progress, don't you think? In a series of letters, Sopko said funds have been used to inflate police salaries and make payments to ghost employees and wrote of questionable deductions that the Ministry of the Interior may have taken from police salaries. There'll be more. Inspector General news about police way back here at home. Meanwhile, a U.S. government watchdog agency is asking the Air Force, the Air Force, to explain why it destroyed 16 aircraft initially bought for the Afghan Air Force and turned them into $32,000 of scrap metal instead of finding other ways to salvage. Nearly $500 million that the U.S. spent on the planes. 
The same the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan asked Air Force, Sec- Air Force Secretary Deborah James, women in politics, to document all decisions made about the destruction of the 16 aircraft that were stored at Kabul International Airport for years and what the Air Force planned to do with four additional planes now in Germany. Oh, you get more for scrap in Germany. I'll bet you that. Sopko's office has been investigating the matter since last December after numerous nonprofit groups and military officials raised questions about funds wasted on the planes. I bet that's I bet that's stealth scrap. The LAPD, the LA Police Department's Inspector General says police have been gaming department computers to falsely inflate the number of officers and patrol cars that are on duty at any given time. Ghost cars. See, just like Afghanistan. Made it appear that more police were pounding the beat than were actually available to respond to 911 calls. The Inspector General for the Police Commission was tipped off about the fake patrol stats last March. His report was made public a couple weeks ago. It's a smoke and mirrors tactic, says a director of the U.S. Police of the Los Angeles Police Protective League. The report said LAPD officers and managers of various ranks would check officers into vacant assignments right before the department's computerized patrol software did its headcount, then log the officers off when the count was done. So easy to fool computers. Who knew? I'd have gotten one years ago if I'd known that. But wait, there's more. There's still more. For your listening pleasure. And it's coming right up. Deadline, DeKalb County, Georgia. A federal audit found the DeKalb County Police Department was awarded millions of dollars in federal grant money after submitting inflated crime statistics. Now, this is a new one. We normally hear about police departments lying. Oh, excuse me. Uh, massaging statistics to make it look like crime is lower, which redounds supposedly to the political benefit of the police chief and the mayor. This is different. Inflated crime statistics. The audit by the officer of the inspector general with the Department of Justice found that if the crime numbers had been reported accurately, the DeKalb County Police Department would not have received certain federal funds. The funds were used to hire sworn officers and fund a child sexual predator program. $2,300,000 million of funds. The most egregious example in the grant application DeKalb County Police submitted in 2008, the county had more than 11,000 aggravated assaults. Investigators with the federal audit team found the real number was closer to 1,000. Well, aggravated. It's a term of art. It's in the eye of the aggravator. A new report to Congress by the uh, that reconstruction IG in Afghanistan says the country remains dangerously unstable even as the American military withdrawal accelerates. Insurgent attacks have reached the highest levels in three years. The Afghan army has has sustained heavy combat losses and is experiencing high attrition rates. And uh, as we've talked on this program, opium poppy cultivation is going up. Hey, who isn't? The U.S. Army has been slow to investigate hundreds of millions of dollars in missing weapon systems, vehicles, electronics, and communications gear in Afghanistan, according to the Pentagon's Inspector General. It's looking good over there. This was the good war. 
The Army Field Support Brigade in Afghanistan responsible for managing gear being shipped out of the country failed to report in a timely manner 156,000 pieces of unaccounted gear, valued as much as half a billion, according to a report labeled, for official use only, the reviewed major lost property reports from fiscal 2013. Thousands of pieces of highly sensitive equipment included, including encryption devices, radios, and weapons. The report cited lax oversight, underscoring the logistics challenge the U.S. troops withdrawing from Afghanistan. The Pentagon is spending a bi- $7 billion on the effort and getting out, including shipping out equipment that's supposed to be returned to U- for the U.S. The Army alone had an inventory of about $27 billion in military hardware in Afghanistan. Some of the missing gear may eventually turn up in the United States, but due to significant delays in reporting inventory losses, the Army's Sustainment Command, which oversees the effort, does not have accurate accountability and visibility of the property, says Assistant Inspector General for Contract Management. From 2006 to 2010, the Army lost track of 174,000 pieces of equipment. 23% were eventually found. So there's hope. There's always hope. News of the Inspector General, ladies and gentlemen, the copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, speaking of Afghanistan, there seems to be a fairly unseemly little squabble going on over who killed, who, who, sh- who fired the shot that killed Osama bin Laden. Fox News is presenting two one-hour documentaries this week about a guy named Robert O'Neill, former Army, uh, former Navy SEAL, who claims he shot the former al-Qaeda leader. This uh, challenges the account of another Navy SEAL by the name of Bissonette, who appeared under a pseudonym on 60 Minutes a while back, saying he was the shooter. Meanwhile, the commander of the Navy, one of the commanders of the Navy SEALs has gone public in the Washington Post saying... We don't talk publicly about our work. So how do you how do you get to the bottom of this? He says he did it. I killed Osama bin Laden. He says he did it. I killed Osama bin Laden. He says it doesn't matter. SEALs never take personal credit. And we say, wanna bet? Now, an explosive new series from Bone TV will prove once and for all who handled the world's most evil dude with extreme prejudice. Operation Kill Osama again. Three nights, two seals, one chance. The entire raid restaged exactly from the first briefing. Chopper lands at 1830. Compound secured by 1845. To the final stare down. And one seal gets to take that all important shot. Freeze, mother locker! O'Neill versus Bissonette. Only one can be the best of the best of the best. A Bone TV exclusive. Operation Kill Osama Again. Next week, starting at 8, followed at 9 by Daredevil Jim Knievel's shocking new documercial, Behead Me, on Bone TV, television for the boy and all men. Don't just watch it, bone it. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. 
Matt Taibbi used to write for Rolling Stone. He left to form a new publication called Racket with uh, Pierre Omidyar's backing, the PayPal magnet. Uh, that fell apart, and so his latest report on a whistleblower inside J.P. Morgan Chase appeared this week in Rolling Stone. But Matt Taibbi had an apology. No, it didn't. Um, you know, I, I think all I can really say about that is that uh, I'm really devastated by the way everything turned out. Um, it was uh, a really horrible situation all around. Uh, I, I'm very, very sorry for the staff that is still there, the people that I hired who, who took the leap of faith to come work for me. And, and, and in, in a way, I'm as happy as I am to be back at Rolling Stone, which, which I always loved. Um, I'm sad that this piece isn't out in Racket. I mean, I think it, it would have been a great piece to launch with, but it just didn't work out that way, and, and that's unfortunate. Lena Dunham, who in recent days has been accused of sexually abusing her younger sister, Grace, based on excerpts from her memoir, apologized this week for, quote, the comic use of the word sexual predator. She said in a statement written for Time magazine, she was also sorry if certain anecdotes in her book were painful or triggering for people to read. One excerpted sentence that stood out from the first excerpt, quote, basically anything a sexual predator might do to woo a small suburban girl, I was trying with her then one-year-old sister's private parts. Deadline Shanghai, Patrick Reed has apologized for an outburst of language that was caught on camera during the first round of a golf tournament. Reed, apparently a golfer, missed a five-footer for a three-putt bogey on the 10th hole. You don't want a three-putt bogey, do you? Is that a bad thing? And then he muttered, Nice effing three-putt, you effing effort. A Gaysler Golf Channel analyst Frank, Frank Nobil, Nobilo immediately apologized for the language, which could be heard clearly on the broadcast. Reed, the golfer, later said on Twitter, I'm sorry for using offensive language today in China. My passion to play well got the best of me, and my word choice was unacceptable. Passion from a golfer. Dayline Guatemala City, Guatemala's president has apologized to 33 communities of indigenous Achi people who were forced to abandon their homes to make way for construction of the Chicxoy hydroelectric dam in the north of the country. President Otto Perez Molina says he asks forgiveness for atrocities and other human rights violations suffered by those communities over the project, which occurred during Guatemala's civil war, which you and I supported, the atrocity committers. Some people were assassinated, others had their land expropriated. The apology was delivered this week to a gathering of Achi as officials provided details of an agreement to provide $153 million in compensation for the damage inflicted on them. It will be distributed over the next 15 years. It's a million a year for Native American, you know. Dayline Malta, Dominican priest Mark Montebello served as a go-between to offer a six-figure sum to the alleged victims of sex abuses. Oh, this is not an apology. Get to that later or next week. A violent patient in Minnesota's sex offender treatment program admitted in therapy that he was grooming his new roommate for sex, but the staff failed for weeks to intervene or prevent the rape that subsequently occurred. The state has paid $203,000 to settle the lawsuit by the victim. In addition, Deputy Human Services Commissioner Ann Barry has apologized to the victim, telling him by letter the agency sincerely regrets the sexual assault that was perpetrated upon you by your roommate. A former teen hacker who stole nude photos from Paris Hilton's cell phone, Paris Hilton, and swiped a half million dollars from unsuspecting consumers, tells NBC News and his most famous victim that he's sorry for what I did. Paris, I'm sorry I put your information online, said Cameron LaCroix. I should never have done it, 
I wouldn't want it done to me. He's about to report to federal prison to begin a four-year sentence. Or something else may be done to him that he wouldn't like. But, but you know, who knows? Who can say? Uh, maybe in four years he will. Uh, and there are more apologies for the week. For the uh, There's one more, as a matter of fact. Dateline, Louisville, Kentucky, a parochial school in Kentucky, has apologized to a teacher who resigned due to an Ebola scare after she traveled to an area of Africa thousands of miles away from the affected areas. According to a letter to parents made public this week, teacher and nurse Susan Sherman traveled on a medical mission trip to Kenya, triggering concerns from parents who were clearly well-informed about Ebola and don't know that Africa is a big place and don't know where to find a map. Her return came at a time of rising concerns over Ebola. Before she returned from her fourth regular trip on health care work, St. Margaret Mary School sent out a bulletin to parents saying she would be taking a precautionary leave. Now she has resigned. St. Margaret Mary is deeply apologetic for any pain the situation has caused Mrs. Silverman and very much regrets, uh, sorry, Ms. Sherman, and very much regrets Ms. Sherman's decision to resign. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Things are not, well, things are going well for Tony Blair, former British Prime Minister. He signed a big deal with uh, Saudi Oil Company this week. That should put him in good stead as a Mideast peace negotiator, which is his current public role. Mideast peace envoy. He may not be doing any negotiating, but he'll be doing some envoying. But now he's on the Saudi payroll. But on the other hand, some bad news for the former prime minister. His uh, tea with him and his wife, Sherry, was offered as a char- in a charity auction in Britain. There's still time to bid, but uh, so far, and the, the minimum, the guide price for tea with Tony, Mr. and Mrs. Tony Blair was 5,000 pounds. That's about $7,500. So far, as of the reporting of the British newspaper, the London Telegraph, no bidders. No bidders on tea with Tony Blair. How does he deal with that? Resting Eagle. Uh, Hello, Mr. President. Yeah. You've been cleared? <laughs> well, yes, as a matter of fact, I have been, George. It's Tony. Tony? Mm-hmm. Only Tony I know is my painting instructor, and he speaks with this phony-sounding French Tony Blair. <laughs> the Blair Bear! <laughs> hey, how the heck are you, Tone Bone? Well, yeah, I can't tell you the last time I thought about you. But, uh, but that's a good thing, right? Yes, so. Mm. But hey, you in the neighborhood? Laura's just out getting some hush puppies from the Piggly Wiggly. I'm sure we can... No, no, sir. Tempting. That that does sound... uh, Regrettably, I'm not in the States at the moment. Well, you sound like you're right next door, Mm. but you're probably over helping out in that whole Kazakhstan thing. How's that going? Uh, Well, actually, sir, it's... Kazakhstan, and it's it's going quite well. It's amazing how much progress a country can make while still remaining a brutal dictatorship. Hey, didn't hurt Pinochet. <laughs> well, it did in the end, I suppose. Now, in the end, all you got is your heart, your head, and your nuts, and one of them's going to let you down. <laughs> well, that's quite insightful, George. Yeah. Aside from the painting, I've I've had time lately to read some philosophy. Really? Who can't? Who can't what? Who, who, who can't 
Uh, no, uh, uh, what philosophers are you reading, George? Oh, you know, that uh, that uh, Seven Habits fella? Oh, yes, well, of course, he's very good, very good indeed. Much, much better than the uh, Six Habits person that uh, goes with that. So listen, Tonebone, what, mm. uh, what can a humble ex-president of the United States do for you? I'm, I'm, I'm knee-deep into kind of self-portrait of me shaving, and I... Yes, yes, George, right. Well, obviously, I wouldn't be calling you there at the ranch and all, if it weren't a matter of some importance to me personally, uh, and in a way, uh, a bit of a reflection on the goals that we prayed on and uh, we worked on together. Yeah, yeah. Well, is that little space between the nose and the lips called? It's, uh, it, I believe it's called the philtrum. Hmm. It's a B.I. double hockey sticks to paint, I'll tell you that, my friend. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd have to take your word for that, I'm afraid. Uh, my painting skills are limited to... to making the president of whatever stand look good. <laughs> Go ahead now. Well, well, George, you know my interest in that charity work. Sure, sure, love it. And how much it means to me to help those less fortunate than you or for that matter. I, oh, Blair Bear, I hear you're richer than half the Saudi princes now. Well, George, I, I have had some opportunities come my way. I've seized them, and uh, they've turned out to be very good opportunities indeed, and all the more reason why I do try to give back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And who, who's stopping you? <laughs> well, nobody's stopping me, uh, but I had had a, a tea with myself and Cherie. You remember Cherie? Uh, she sends her love. That's the missus, right? A, a, a tea with us offered at a charity auction. And George, mm. the damnedest, or I should have said, <laughs> the darndest thing uh, has happened. You ran out of tea? Oh, <laughs> wooed it with that. Well, were it? Uh, uh, no, but you see, uh, bidding has been open uh, for a good few days now, and, uh, well, uh, maybe a glitch here or there, but... Uh, one doesn't get all the information on these things, does one? But it appears that uh, we seem to be rather low on bidders for the, that particular item. Mm -hmm. How low? Uh, well, uh, rather near uh, zero bidders. Mm -hmm. How near? <laughs> well, it would be zero bidders at the moment, uh, in point of fact. Nobody wants to have tea with you and the message. Well, I'd hope that weren't the case. Uh, but no, I, I think it's more a matter of nobody yet has wanted to pay uh, £5,000 for the privilege. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it would be a, a very long tea. Mm -hmm. What, a couple hours? Oh, oh at the least. It, it, it could go as, as long as four. I'm sure Sherry could clear her schedule. You know, she's a very busy international lawyer. I mean, I... I should think it would be worth £5,000 to have tea with her alone. But that's not possible? Uh, no, I'm afraid the deal we made with the auction house. Well, no, it's the two of us. And, uh, George, it's been so long since we've all gotten together and, you know, just been able to talk about the things we really care about. Uh, God and so forth. Tonebone, are you asking Laura and me to bid on having some tea with you folks? Well, it is for a very good cause, which uh, my people can brief your people on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think the larger point is that at this time, when the special relationship between my country and yours, George, has, uh, shall we say, a bit tattered, mm -hmm. what a splendid gesture it would be for the world to see the uh, two of us, uh, the four of us, uh, to see us taking tea together for a very good cause, of course. Yeah. Get me in Texas? I really don't know. I... Uh, I imagine anything's possible these days. Cause, but, uh, cause Dick Taney and a few of the other fellows and I, we're, we're not doing much international traveling these days. If you, uh, 
Catch my drips. Uh, well, of course, you you did go to Montreal a year or two ago, didn't you? Yeah, but that's not Europe, that's Canada. It's just America with training wheels. So, well, I could ask whether the tea could be held over there. I mean, maybe if one of the British tea companies could sponsor it as a leaves across the sea sort of... Well, listen here, Blair Bear. When you find out whether we could have... Uh, I mean, Laura and I could have coffee, right? Oh, of course, George. Uh, tea is just a figure of speech. Well, I'm not that good with figures, but I'm okay on speeches. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know, okay? Uh, uh, I got some uh, paint drying here. I, I got to keep an eye on it. Right, George, we'll do. Thanks so much, and uh, love to Laura from both of us. We miss her so very, very... You take care now, Tom. Old friend, what you been doing with your life then? With all of those plans you figured out since when? Back in those high school days. So now you've come you struggle for that one dream chasing your rainbow wasn't what it seemed and it didn't all go your way you hurt when others were growing you still fail when others are glowing you feel stale just watching your gossip tv
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations. Over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan. Around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network. Up and down the east coast of Amer- North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet. On the mighty 104 in Berlin. Around the world via the internet at two different locations. Live and archived whenever you want at harryshira.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone. Super cookies and all. At stitcher.com and available as a free podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, TuneIn Radio, a bunch of other places. And uh, it'd be just like never performing another wedding gig again. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. I'm just kidding. I loved it. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii decks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson, the increasingly famous Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans, for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this broadcast and the playlist of the music heard here on, why, they're available, along with Cars I Talk t-shirts, enough said, at harryshearer.com. We're getting ready for the big uh, Christmas Without Tears tour. New York, Chicago, L.A., and San Francisco. Check it out. It's for mental health charities in those cities and for the New Orleans Musicians Clinic. The four heard Judith Owen and myself. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans. Flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans. <laughs>